Please sit comfortably. Good morning, everyone. Day four of the session. The title of this talk, talk is The Paradoxical Nature of Suffering. Um, the Buddha, um, by all accounts, was um, a very pragmatic type of person. And uh, when someone asked him once, you know, about uh, theolo theological questions about whether there's a God and um, the meaning of this and the meaning of that, he kind of said to this person, well, it, it's like if you got shot with an arrow and you're in pain and you want to know where the arrow was made and who made and what village it came from and what tree it came from, you know, well, it's really all you need to do is pull out the arrow, right, you know, to relieve the suffering. So he, he was very pragmatic. And at some point in his teachings, uh, he emphasised is that if you really want to know what all my teaching is about, it's about suffering and the end of suffering. Right? That's it. Mm -hmm. And anything that strays outside of that is not, not what I'm, I'm interested in. And so as the story goes, when he had his awakening experience and he returned to see his friends, you know, and entered the world again, um, is that the first teaching he gave was the Four Noble Truths, which we're all familiar with. Um, that the suffering, a cause of suffering, an end of suffering, and a path that leads to the end of suffering. Now, the word dukkha, as I was mentioning the other day, um, is often translated as suffering. But these, these uh, the Four Noble Truths, are, they're, they're a medical metaphor. They're based on medicine. It's like there's a disease, the cause of the disease, there's an end of the disease, and this is the treatment. Um, so when you look at the word dukkha, um, people often say to me, well, you know, I'm not suffering, you know, so what do I need to practice? But there, like, in, like in medicine, there is, there is acute disease and there's chronic. And, and when we use the word suffering, we're usually referring to something which is very, very acute. You know, we've been in a car accident, you know, or someone close to us has, has died or something like that. Um, we've lost our job. But dissatisfaction is more like a chronic illness. You know, it's like it's something which is always there and sometimes it flares up a little bit, but it's always there with kind of low-level pain to it. And um, so, so dukkha is both of those things, like in medicine it's acute and it's, and it's chronic. And it's just the nature of being a human being, a sentient being, that we suffer because um, all sentient beings, that is all beings that are sensitive, um, experience pleasure and pain. So any, any kind of life form, that's, that's its very nature of being a life form, is that it will experience pleasure and it will experience pain. And, um, and things like stones, furniture, you know, water, things like that, they're, they're, they're things which aren't sentient so that they don't suffer. <coughs> and of course, um, so there's dukkha and then there's the, 
then there's the cause of suffering, which is usually translated as desire. But that needs a bit of clarity as well, because it's often thought of in desire like sexuality, wanting lots of sensual things, etc., etc., worldliness. But the true meaning of it is, which is really there in our practice principles, it's that the cause of suffering is the desire to want life to be other than what it is. So those words in the, in the practice principles, life as it is, the only teacher. Um, most people, when they have suffering, want to remove or change life as it is so they don't suffer. That would be the conventional kind of way people go about things. The Buddha's perspective is very different. It's, that it's not about changing things to suit your desires. It's reducing your desire for it to be other than what it is. Then you won't suffer as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is nirvana, which means it's not some. It means the end of suffering. Mm-hmm. People think of it as some otherworldly state, you know. But it actually means the extinguishing of the flame, the end of suffering. And then we have the the eightfold noble path. And the Eightfold, I won't go through all of them, but the Eightfold Noble Path is, is divided into three sections. And those three sections, components, are the three-legged stool that I talked about in the first, the first day. So there's insight, like right view, etc. And there's meditation. And there's ethics, you know, like right livelihood, etc. You know, and, and, uh, and the precepts. And so there's your medical model. There's like suffering, like a disease, cause of it. We can end it. And this is the treatment to end it. Mm-hmm. All sounds very simple, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what develops out of that is the bodhisattva spirit. So where we begin is we look at how we create our own suffering and how we can reduce that suffering, manage that suffering uh, in our own life so that we reach more of a state of equanimity in ourselves and compassion arises of that because being human beings, we don't just necessarily think of ourselves, we're, we're wired up to be connected to others and we know we, now we know we have mirror neurons Right, which are neurons which help us to understand the feeling states of other people or other beings. And so we begin by trying to reduce our own suffering through insight, meditation and ethics. Um, but then what dawns on us is this bodhisattva spirit. Well, it's not just me that's suffering, everyone is to some degree. So how can I work towards reducing the suffering of everyone and everything, not just me. So what happens with the, with the, in the shift, you know, through practice, that three-legged stool, um, when we're suffering a lot, there's a very big sense of self, you know. When, so the more self, the more problems, you know. Um, no self, well, no problems. Somewhere in between there, maybe. 
and with meditation we become grounded, develop serenity, and through the precepts we at least do our best not to to create any um, intentional suffering in the world, any intentional harm in the world. Um, so they're the three that go together. Um, now, the uh, to come back to our contemporary life here in 21st century Australia, um, we have a book in my profession in psychiatry which is called the DSM-5 and it's the list of all the different psychiatric illnesses that people, that human beings may have. And in the trade it's known as the Book of Woes. (laughs) And um, so it's the book of suffering. You know, it's kind of outlining in modern language and what we understand about neuroscience and so on. It outlines with a whole lot of different categories and subcategories, um, all, all the many different forms of suffering that human beings go through. And it's a medical model. And um, medical models, whether it's the medical model of the Four Noble Truths or the medical model of the DSM-5, have their own problems. They're not very subtle. Mm -hmm. So the nature of, like the Four Noble Truths is a very, very linear kind of view. You know, like, this is the problem, this is the cause, we can fix it, do this, right? Fully enlightened. Mm -hmm. From from A to B, right? Like that. And, uh, but as the Buddha went on in his life and in his teaching, um, this very basic kind of teaching which you first gave, which is very good because it, it's very simple to understand, um, but as he went on in his teachings and he matured in the way that he taught, it became much more nuanced, you know, and it's become much more nuanced over the centuries. But going back to the, the DSM-5, you know, the way it works is that there's all these different categories and you get diagnosed in a category, you know, and there's a treatment for the category. And, and uh, it's a very, it's put together in a very linear kind of way. You're either this or you're that. Sometimes you can have a dual diagnosis if you're lucky. <laughs> right? but, but, but it's this category, this category. Uh, these are the symptoms, these are the symptoms. This is the cluster of symptoms here and there. And... What the Four Noble Truths, what's missing in it, and the DSM-5, there's no nuance, there's no subtlety. You can't capture the complexity and the wonder of human experience or human suffering in in these simple little categories and words. Mm -hmm. It's much more complex than that. And... Um, that's why I'm using the word here, the paradoxical nature of suffering, is that it's... To go back to Ian McGilchrist, I'm sure Ian McGilchrist would agree with me that, as a psychiatrist too, but a thinking psychiatrist, oh. is that... Um, I, I should say a deeply reflective psychiatrist, is that um, it's based on the left hemisphere view of the world that sort of categorisation, just like the Four Noble Truths is in a way. 
It, it loves simplicity. It, it loves yes or no, black and white. Mm-hmm. But that's not the nature of our, our human experience. And um, if we look at it, if we look at the nature of suffering, again, we see that opposites come together. Uh, and all of us have probably experienced um, sweet sadness. Yeah? If we reflect on the experience of sweet sadness. So it's kind of pleasurable, but it's melancholy at the same time. So there's two opposites coming together. The suffering, and yet there's not suffering. Mm-hmm. And in the um, Renaissance era in Europe, um, where there seems to be more of a shift towards right hemisphere type of thinking, there was a lot of um, flourishing of the arts and poetry. Uh, Wordsworth, people like that, um, who wrote in this style where it wasn't very linear, you know, but they, they wrote in a style which actually captured the paradox of emotions and they, they valued the experience of melancholy as part of being, being part of the human condition rather than something that you had to get rid of. Very, very, very different from how our modern approach of um, the pursuit of happiness, you know, be positive all the time, you know, don't feel sad, you know, have good things happen to you. There was a much, back in the Renaissance era, there was this, they, they, they had a, a, a mindset that was, that saw truth as being like opposites coming together. And this is very much embodied in our, in our Zen literature, like the, um, the identity of relative and absolute. You see those opposites coming together. Someone either um, deliberately or unintentionally named our, or translated or interpreted our um, sutra identity of relative and absolute as the coincidence of opposites. Mm-hmm. A little bit of poetic license there, but I know what they mean. It's also interesting to make a distinction between um, desire and longing. And they sound like they're similar, but they're not quite the same. Desire is kind of like a very direct grasping wanting of something. But if you reflect on the experience of longing, it is a, it's kind of like it's a, an aspiring to something or a desiring to something. But it's not necessarily you've got to grab it and have it. And, and it's like you savour the longing. There is a, a, a wonderful um, poem called The Seafarer, which I can relate to doing solo sailing. And it's about what, it, what the poem captures is the longing to be at home while there's the longing to be at sea. Mm-hmm. And that's a metaphor for really a lot of our experience in life as a human being. We, we, we long for something and yet we long for its opposite as well. We long to go overseas on an interesting journey, but at the same time, we long to be back home again. So paradox, as a form of language and metaphor, captures the human experience much better than these linear kind of models.
One way of thinking of human experience and the complexity of all of our emotions, instead of thinking, oh, we just experience anger or sadness or love or whatever, it's about, it's about holding all of those things together. And if you reflect on some of Thich Nhat Hanh's writings uh, in one of his sutras, it's along the lines of, you know, hold all your joys and sorrows together. Mm-hmm. Not go from sorrow to joy. Hold all, all your joys and all your sorrows together. Hold them together. And our experience is more like it's a magnetic field. So a magnetic field's got a positive and a negative pole. And there is an, there is an in-betweenness to experience. And what I'm what I'm suggesting to you, you know, in terms of understanding your same practice and your meditation practice, is is to just be in, in betweenness. Right? Is this idea that you've got to reach some um, full enlightenment, right? Go from go from the dark to the light. But actually, our experience is our journey through life is always an in betweenness. And I'd suggest that you, 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 you see your meditation practice in that way. There's always in between us. It's like we, we want to reduce suffering, but if we had no emotions, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be human. You know? It reminds me of um, a, a very touching saying that the late Queen Elizabeth said, you know, um, in her last few years after her husband died, grief is the price you pay for love. Mm-hmm. Very moving statement. Um, if you don't want to love, don't have grief. But if you don't want to, want to, don't want to love, are you really a full human being or are you a machine? Mm-hmm. Are you a sentient being or a non-sentient being? that you're aiming for. So that statement in itself, like to bring it to relationships, is a wonderful um, statement which sums up the Zen experience. And even the Buddha in his day, you know, in his later years, um, some of his older disciples, who were his lifelong friends, started to die. And you can see it in some of his um, teachings, you know, in some of the sutras, that he, he makes statements like, it doesn't seem the same after Shariputra died, you know, it's not the same place. That, and they're the words of someone who is grieving. The, the Buddha was a human being like all of us. He experienced the love, you know, this, this deep sense of friendship with his Sangha. And at the same time, he grieved when they died. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the experience we have as well. In Zen literature, um, this is summed up very beautifully in a, uh, a koan and a poem, which I've mentioned maybe a few sessions before, um, called The Hazy Moon of Enlightenment. And the relevant words in it. Most people want it pure white, but sweep as you will, you will never empty the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's in between us. Mm-hmm. 
is sleeping to empty the mind, but it'll never be empty in between those. And so that's the way to understand this in practice. Joko said that she thought that um, full and complete enlightenment is actually just an ideal. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's a, a sense of um, um, perfection, you know, the idea of perfect clarity, perfection, like a full moon without anything blocking its view. Um, but to, to live in the hazy moon of awakening, you know, to live in the, the hazy moon of everyday life, is, I think, to um, have a perspective of practice where you really just really deeply accept yourself as you are as a flawed human being, right? like the rest of us, like all of us. So it's like we, we just accept that, we accept that um, suffering side of us and we also have the, the, we have the um, skills to skillfully navigate ourselves through suffering, don't so there's not unnecessary suffering, right? We manage our emotional reactions far better. We don't do harm. Um, we reduce our karma in the world, to put it that way, like the consequence of our actions. Um, but do we escape it altogether? Not really. Would that be a desirable thing? I'm not sure. <laughs>